you know, I've been around a long time. I know how hard this is. From the political science department at UW-Madison. Am I exasperated? Absolutely, I'm exasperated. I'm Adam Wigger. This country's gone through tough times before, and we're going to do it again. And I'm Sam Beisman. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. And this is 1050 Basketball. Today on the podcast, we are excited for the opportunity to have Jordan Ellenberg, professor of mathematics here at UW, to talk through some of the many varied and interesting topics he engages with in his new book, Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. The book, published in May, has received rave reviews in several national and international news outlets, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, the Boston Globe, and many others. Shape has also become one of those rare academic books that piques the interest of a mass popular audience. In addition to his previous book, How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking, and many research articles, Professor Ellenberg has authored a novel, The Grasshopper King, which was a finalist for the 2004 Young Lions Fiction Award. He also writes the Do the Math column in Slate, and has published articles on mathematical topics in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Wired, Seed, and The Believer. And before we get into it, we were just talking about today's mayoral election in New York City, the hot topic of the day, and it's what we're starting out with, apparently. Yeah, I'm just reading about it this morning as I do my media diet. And, you know, what's interesting about this election is that it's being held under this mechanism of ranked choice voting, where voters are asked not just to pick who is their first choice for mayor, but to give a list of up to five people in order. And then there's going to be what's sort of called an instant runoff, where the person, I think the way they do it in New York is the person with the fewest first place votes is eliminated. And then that person's, whoever voted for that person first, their votes are distributed to their second choice candidate. And then this process goes on and on and on iteratively until it goes down to three, goes down to two, and then finally goes down to one winner. So it's a pretty interesting and novel. Well, the the idea is not new, but it hasn't really taken place in U.S. elections very much before. And I would say this is probably the they've done. They do it in Maine, actually. They did it for the governor of Maine already. But like the national media doesn't follow Maine governor's races that much. So I think this is like the highest profile because New York is New York election of this kind that's taken place so far. Is this like the new thing? Are we are we going to expect this to show up in more elections going forward? Well, there is a proposal right here in Wisconsin in the legislature that has some support from both parties. Now, just talking to people I would say I don't get the impression that people think the chances of this actually becoming law are that high, but it is. There are people from both parties who are supporting moving to a combination of open primary and ranked choice for the general election. So what that would mean is there would be a primary that was not separated by party instead of having a Democratic primary and a Republican primary like we have now in Wisconsin. There would just be a primary where anybody can run from any party and then the top five vote getters go to the general election, which would be one one ranked choice. And it's a pretty interesting proposal for a lot of reasons. One, I think it would give people who represent smaller parties like more of a chance to be meaningfully present on a general election ballot. I also think it would create pretty interesting dynamics within the parties, which my first instinct is would be pretty healthy. Like right now, 
if you want to be the Democratic or the Republican candidate for an election in Wisconsin, uh, your path is that you have to be the most appealing to the primary voters of your party, who are typically like the most engaged uh, and the most kind of ideological of your voters. And I think, you know, a lot of people feel like that creates candidates who are in some ways like out of step with their electorate. And it creates elections where a lot of voters, I think, don't feel super enthusiastic about either candidate. So there's a feeling that, you know, shaking things up a little bit uh, might yield better results. But you don't know what's going to People are people, right? They're not chits on a board. So you don't know what's going to happen until you do it. So that's why I think it's going to be so interesting to watch what happens in New York and to watch how this plays out and to see whether people feel like, yeah, this worked. Like I got to express my preferences and I feel good about it. I think it's been pretty successful in Maine. Yeah, it almost feels like it's something that works well on a on a localized level, on like a city or like a very specific district too. I wonder how it would work in broader, like statewide elections. I mean, I think one reason Wisconsin is a good test case is that we already don't have party registration here. There's not very many states that are like that. So of course, people in Wisconsin might say, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican, but you're not registered with a party. Somebody who always votes for Democrats can go vote in the Republican primary if they want to. You can't vote in both. You have to pick one but in any given election. So already there's somehow the notion of a nonpartisan primary makes sense in an officially nonpartisan state. And in fact, you see David Clark, who was the sheriff of Milwaukee County for a long time. That guy was unquestionably a Republican in his political commitments, but he was officially a Democrat and he won every time because the Republicans in Waukesha County, sorry, Milwaukee County, would always vote for him in the Democratic primary, there being no obstacle to them doing so. So you do get sort of like weird effects from this kind of system where we don't have party registration, but we do have partisan primaries. It's a little bit of a weird mismatch. I think we've seen, especially in regards to the New York mayoral elections, but a lot of voters seem to almost be getting frustrated with how many candidates there are and kind of how many things are going on. Do these kind of elections require... I don't know, I guess a more engaged voter and a more engaged candidate to make sense of it all? I don't know. I mean, I think that, look, I think the concept of ranking five things from top to bottom is like a thing that we do all the time. It's not, we may not typically do it in an election context, but we do it. The other thing I would say, so Addison, you brought up how maybe this would work better in a municipal election. So yeah. I don't know that much about New York politics, but I, I know that here in Madison, uh, I was told by a local candidate that in a municipal election in Madison, whether it be city council, school board, mayor, the median age of a voter in that election is 65. 65! That's As... who votes in local elections, at least here in yeah. Wisconsin. And, and Madison's one of the youngest cities in the state. So doing it in municipal elections, you are probably weighting it towards, I don't want to say old, let's say dif disproportionately change averse voters who have like many decades of experience of doing it the other way and maybe are like less excited about sort of suddenly adopting a new system. Now, now in New York might be different for all I know. I actually don't know what the age profile is of people who vote for it, but I know that they expect the turnout to be very low. I know they're talking about like sort of, I think 15 to 20% turnout for this mayoral election. Well, it depends. You know, we have some of our elections here in Madison where it's contested and a lot of people turn out and then, you know, one year later, only 50 people out of a district turnout. So you never know what's going to happen. Yeah, but for the, for the local elections, for like mayor, for school board, for alder, like I don't think you see 
I don't think you ever see yeah. what you would call big turnout for even in this very politically active city. I just don't think people show up to vote for mayor. My person I know was running against someone who was not a student running for a student district. So the fact that my candidate who I was doing work for was a student, well, that meant the election felt particularly dramatic. You know, that fight for endorsements, that fight for attention. And in the end, about, I want to say, 1,600 people voted in that election. And that is only because it was... It was April 2020, so that was also a presidential preference kind of vote. So that's the only reason voters showed up in any other election at any other time. It doesn't matter if it's dramatic, people won't show up. I mean, in just our past district's alder vote, so who would represent the student district on the Uncommon Council, there was like a lot of intrigue around that election, a lot of scandals. And still, I think it was like 300 people, like 300 people showed up for that one. And that was contentious. So that just goes to show, you know, dramatics does not equal turnout, I guess, which is, it's sad, but it is what it is. Wow. Well, I, I would actually say, like, the county board. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure it was pretty low. That is, even by the standards of municipal elections, like, I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I try to stay in board, and I cannot tell you who my county board member is. I have to look it up every time. I know who my state rep is. I know who my state senator is. But... Uh, I was once campaigning for a candidate, knocking on doors, and one of the doors I knocked on, it turned out, was a Dane County board member who was pretty peeved that I was not, that nobody, I was not, nobody was going around knocking on doors for them. And I had to listen to a whole speech about how the county board is very important. And they were like, we control the airport and the zoo. I was like, okay, I know it's important, but. Well, I guess if we want to take a moment now to circle back to geometry, In your book, Shape, you talk about the math of gerrymandering and the issue of the fact that gerrymandering creates situations where the people that get elected don't necessarily represent the wants and needs of the people that elected them. If you'd like, I'd love to hear about the nitty gritty of that and maybe the math behind gerrymandering. Living here in Wisconsin... I mean, we are really ground zero for these questions about districting. So to give the to give the basic story, every 10 years we have a census, and that means that our legislative districts are no longer legal because they're required by the constitution to be the same size. Well, you know, people move around, like people some parts of Wisconsin are growing, like the part we live in here in Dane County, other parts are shrinking in population. So those those districts get out of whack and they have to be redrawn. And here's the thing: it turns out this, I think traditionally has been thought of as kind of a technical and boring topic. But the truth is we now understand that you can actually have a huge influence over who sits in the legislature if you're the person who draws those district boundaries. Even though the state of Wisconsin is very evenly split between Democrats and Republicans, um, our state assembly is not, and it's not even close. I think right now it's 63 Republicans and 36 Democrats, and that is by design. And, you know, one thing, you know, writing about this from a Wisconsin centric point of view, which I do in the book, because that's the example I know best. And I write a lot about there's a lot of Wisconsin place names and pictures and stuff like that in the book. It's easy to make it sound like it's a Republican thing, but it's really not. It's really something that parties that find a way to seize the mechanisms of power do, whether they're Democrats or Republicans. And if the Libertarians or the Greens or somebody else sort of somehow managed to seize control of the state legislature, I promise they would do it, too. 
And they do it because there's no limit on it. They're, they do it because the incentives that we offer legislators to keep themselves in power are so very great that as partisan operatives, they almost feel like they can't not do it. We're not trying to find a perfectly fair way to draw those districts. It's not even clear that question makes sense. What I say in the book is it's not a math question, but it's not not a math question. It's not just something you can be like, here's the equation that tells you when the districts are exactly fair. But what we can do pretty well is identify the absolute most unfair ways to do it, of which I'm afraid the assembly map that we currently live in in Wisconsin uh, under Act 43 is, is one of the most grievous offenders. I'll give you an example. You know, in Wisconsin, constitutionally, the governor is supposed to be able to call a special session of the legislature. And what has been happening uh, now under the current government is the governor will call a special session and the legislature will immediately gavel it out. They'll call it and it'll last 10 seconds and it's over. Now, you might say, like, what is, why did we have this provision in our Constitution that the governor has the power to call a special session if the legislature doesn't actually have to do it? Like, wh what does that power consist of? Well, the answer is that, in theory, if the political conditions are such that there's a governor of one party and a legislator controlled by the other, then it should be close enough that the legislature would actually pay some political price for refusing to do the things that the governor was elected to do. We are in a situation where I think the legislature here, and again, in any uh, state where the majority is locked in by gerrymandering, where the legislature doesn't see itself as accountable to the public, it sees itself as accountable to its party. And I think that's a very big political problem. And I think it's one that we could solve and have chosen not to so far. I know you said any party can do it, but it feels at times like it's a very Republican, it's a very Republican thing, gerrymandering. Is that just because Republicans tend to have that power in their states, they tend to have control over the state legislature? Or is it something that Democrats do too when they have the chance? Is it something they will do in the future? Uh, not only do I think that, it's not a hypothetical. That is exactly what happens in places like my home state where I grew up, of Maryland. That is absolutely a Democratic gerrymandered map. In fact, Steny Hoyer, who is, the I think, the second-ranking House Democrat, he called himself a serial gerrymanderer. That was his description of himself. He's been in Maryland politics for 50 years. That's how he describes himself. Now, I will say that if you want me to be honest about it, there are more Republican legislatures doing it than Democratic legislatures. But partly that's because I think the techniques have become perfected uh, or improved a lot recently. And 2010 was a very strong year for Republicans nationally. They held the pen after that particular census. I think Republicans saw just how successful that project could be. So I think, yeah, if you want my honest opinion about the balance, there's certainly more Republicans doing it than Democrats, but I think that's a matter of circumstance. I mean, look, Virginia is a really interesting case where Virginia was a very gerrymandered map by Republicans, but the political conditions changed there so fast that Democrats were able to retake the legislature anyway. You know, Virginia is now... It used to, it was a much more Republican state than Wisconsin. It's now a much, much more Democratic state than Wisconsin. If, if Wisconsin suddenly became like 15 points more Democratic, that too, <laughs> Democrats would have a legislative majority here too. Well, what happened in Virginia, they were working and working to try to sort of come to some compromise about changing the constitution to enforce nonpartisan districting. It sounds like it's still going to happen, but I can tell you a lot of Democrats who had been fighting for that for years, the moment that they won the legislative majority in a census year, all of a sudden their enthusiasm for reform like notably cooled. I, I think last I saw it looks like it's still gonna go through, but it's definitely uh, 
a lot of people who were for it are suddenly not so sure about it now that they hold the pen. And that's, you know, politicians are going to politician. So I don't know every state and I would highly recommend um, MGGG, which is the Metric Geometry and Gerrymandering Group. They have like tons of research publicly available on this. So what I would say is there are states that have a nonpartisan process. And they actually vary, by the way. They're not all blue states. So so Michigan now has like a people's commission, a nonpartisan commission, which I would say like it's a blue leaning state. But Ohio also just reformed its system, which is like a pretty Republican state. Um, so did Utah. So did Colorado. Th- those states don't have that much politically in common. I have to say, so as a mathematician, you're like, okay, what are the rules? Like, let's sort of study the system and study what the rules are. And of course, when you study politics and the way math and politics mix up, you realize there's no one set of rules. There's 50 set of rules. And even what the rules are, it's like pretty ambiguous. And like these sort of very minor technical things make a big difference. Like for instance, one thing that states like Michigan and Ohio and Colorado and Utah have in common is they have a referendum process where a group of citizens can file a petition and bring a matter of state law to a public vote. We don't have that in Wisconsin. Or more precisely, we do have ballot referenda, but only if the, who, who has to initiate it, the state legislature. So only if the majority of, legislature, of the legislature chooses for there to be a state ballot referendum, can there be one, which means we have a process, but the one thing it can't do is go against the will of the state legislature. So in this particular case, it's pretty toothless. So that is probably, most people probably go through their entire life without knowing or needing to know, know what is the what are the procedural rules for a state ballot measure to come before the people as a referendum, right? But then it turned for this particular issue, it turns out to be of critical importance. And there's a lot of things like that, just like some minor structural rule that was put in place 150 years ago for reasons now forgotten, and it makes a big difference. Absolutely. Although I I suppose sometimes it feels that gerrymandering is an issue that's very rural versus urban. It's the people that care versus the people that don't care, the voters that know, the voters that don't know, and it gets tangled. I have a little more optimism than that. I mean, the, what I, you know, what I write about in the book is that I think in general, when people understand what this is, what gerrymandering is, uh, they don't like it. They think it's dirty. When given the opportunity to vote against it in statewide referenda, they vote against it. So I think people are hopefully not that cynical. And I think, look, if your idea of like who's doing politics is based on reading what elected officials say, well, those are the people who are maximally motivated to, you know, it's it's my party by any means necessary. I think that most voters and just most people around the 50 states um, are not so much like that and have some sense like, yeah, it ought to be a fair game. You know, I wouldn't sit down and spend a year writing a book trying to educate people about this if I didn't think people cared, if I didn't think that the education was of value. Well, what keeps you optimistic about redistricting and gerrymandering? Or, you know, what would help our listeners be more optimistic? 
I mean, one thing I would recommend to your listeners who are interested in this. So as you know, or maybe you don't, I don't know, as you know, probably nobody knows this. Anyway, there's a, there is in Wisconsin, a people's commission on redistricting that the governor has formed committee of, of nine folks, like one from maybe it's eight folks, one from each congressional district, or maybe there's a ninth who's de jure or something like that. Anyway, a, a small group of Wisconsin citizens who are doing a fact-finding tour and are going to draw their own map. Now, this map has no legal force. But it is going to be something that is going to be presented as an alternative to whatever the state comes up with. And so I got to say, all of their meetings are on YouTube, right? Public records. This is a state government activity. If you want to feel a little bit better about things, I mean, watch one of their meetings and watch the conversations they have with regular Wisconsin voters who are calling in to sort of weigh in on redistricting. And they are not calling in to say, the Republicans must be destroyed or the Democrats must be destroyed. They are calling in to say like, hey, I live on this lake and there's issues about this lake and it's like split into four districts. Like that makes no sense. Like why do the district lines cross this? Like this whole community is a community and it should be in one district. Like that is the kind of thing that normal people care about with their politics. And that's what they're calling in. And like I said, I'm optimistic enough to believe that we can have a government that is responsive to those kinds of ordinary citizen concerns. If I might backtrack sure. just a little bit in a very cool profile view in the New York Times book review this weekend, one of the questions you addressed was if you could require the president to read one book, what would it be? And we found your response seeing like a state fascinating in particular, and we might be paraphrasing this, But you said this book is important for presidents because it shows the way governments create formal structures that allow political leaders to make sense of the world of people, but how that can also lead them to systematically mistake those formal structures for the actual world. Can you elaborate on what that means to you and for U.S. politics? Yeah, I mean, this book really cracked open my head, and I think that's true for a lot of people. I don't even know if James Scott is like officially like a political scientist or an anthropologist or like what exactly... He is, but he writes about the way that that governments, as they become more formalized, and, and I think a big part of his example is like collecting taxes. Like if you see a big part of your role as a government as collecting taxes, you're kind of reducing the people who live in your country or city or state to items in a spreadsheet, right? There's like sort of some collect, there's some collection of numbers that have to add up. And if you see the population through that lens, you can sort of start to, you know, there's a famous old saying, mistaking the map for the territory. So this would be the sort of numerical analog of that, like mistaking the spreadsheet for the population, right? The spreadsheet definitely keeps track of important information about the population. I mean, that you do want to keep track of, like you do want people to pay the taxes they owe. I'm not sure if James Scott does. I think he's a little more of an anarchist than me, but I do. As a, as a, but I think you can sort of if you look at things through a purely numerical or purely economic lens, you can sort of start to forget that those are individuals and just think of them as numbers. I think actually that ties in, I wasn't thinking about that book when I was writing about gerrymandering, but I think it ties in like very nicely with this gerrymandering point of view where you're not really thinking of the population as people who you are supposed to represent or people to whom you're responsible. You just think of them as a collection of wards, each one of which has like a blue score or red score that you're trying to like add up in a certain way to win a formal game. That is a pretty impoverished view of politics, which I'm afraid too many of our elected officials have fallen into. It it seems like a low bar to clear, I know, to sort of say like, 
it would be great for our elected officials to think of the people they govern and purportedly represent as people, but it is not a bar that is always cleared. But here's the thing of it, by the way, because I want to emphasize that when I say that and when I endorse this kind of like seeing like a state, this kind of James Scott point of view, which I really admire, I don't mean to say you shouldn't make the spreadsheet because you should. That's the thing. There's two ways you can go wrong. You can say like, oh, humanity just is a spreadsheet, which is very wrong. Or you can say in order to avoid thinking of humanity as a spreadsheet, I'm not going to think about things quantitatively and I'm not going to think about things in the aggregate and I'm not going to think about statistically. That is a really big mistake. I actually think like most of the, dis the legal discourse around gerrymandering up till now has not really taken the mathematics of the situation to account. They've been like, we're just going to try to come up with sort of some formal legalistic rule that doesn't involve numbers. That is never going to work. It's never going to work because numbers are real things. Okay, this is like a metaphor. I don't know if you guys will like, but like, it's like this endless discourse in baseball. Like, should people think about statistics or not? Is it about numbers or is it about players like trying to do things? And the answer is, it's about both. Like, yeah, if you think of baseball as like a spreadsheet game where you're just trying to get the highest numbers, it's not very interesting. But if you sort of like refuse to sort of think numerically about like what helps teams win games, I think that also kind of diminishes your understanding and for me, the enjoyment of the game. Do you foresee any potential structural and institutional reforms in the US that might lend itself to more accurately representing reality? That combination of people and numbers? It's a great question. And I think, you know, I start my chapter on gerrymandering just by pointing out that this question of what do we even mean when we say a representative government is representing people? Yeah. It's not at all obvious, like, what to mean by that. I mean, I think certainly as an American, I participate in like the kind of longstanding American tradition of not really knowing what's going on in other countries. Um, but just reading a little bit for this process, I learned that there's like lots of different ways that lots of other countries do it, which are radically different from the US. I'm not sure like one is right and one is wrong, but there's a huge spectrum of ways we can do it. But that's a little bit philosophical. Let me just say to bring it back to what we started with at the beginning, I do think messing around with the mechanisms of voting and see what seeing what happens as we're doing with this big ranked choice experiment in New York, to me, seems very, very healthy. Um, we're going to see whether people feel more represented. And certainly in terms of the issue of gerrymandering, which, again, I see as a very, very big issue. And I actually feel like there's so much discourse. I mean, I think we're voting today, right, about this so HR1, the Voting Rights Act. So a lot of voting stuff's going on today about things that affect voting and things that diminish people's right to vote. Empirically speaking, I think the effect of gerrymandering is much, 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 much bigger than the effect of things like voter ID, the effect of things like purging people from the voter rolls, um, the effect of, you know, changes about who can give a bottle of water to whom, like on voting day. Not that these are not issues, but in terms of the actual extent to which they're materially reducing people's right to be represented and right to have a meaningful vote. I think gerrymandering is actually much bigger than any of those. And I think here's a little optimism through pessimism. Because the system we have is in some sense the worst possible system, right? Where the state, at least in states like Wisconsin, where there's the process is run by the legislature, where the state legislators, or even not all the state legislators, but whoever controls the majority of the state legislature has the power to sort of like lock in that majority. Um, I almost feel like 
any change we make to it, any disruption we do has a pretty high probability of improving the situation. You know, one interesting finding in political science is that right now, voters are pretty partisan and voters are pretty sticky and voters are pretty predictable. Like you can predict much more accurately now than you could in an American electorate 30 years ago of how a given neighborhood is going to vote, at least in a national election, like a, like a Senate or a presidential election. People switch from year to year, which party they vote for a lot less than they used to. And fundamentally, if you're gerrymandering, you have to be able to predict the future to some extent, right? You have to be able to carve up the territory and say, I'm going to, I have a good guess as to how the people in this geographic region are going to vote. The less predictable voting is, the less well gerrymandering is going to work. And I think switching to something like a ranked choice system totally scrambles people's ability to predict what's going on. And I think that's good. So here's here's a hot take. We should make voting more confusing. Because <laughs> if it's a little bit more confusing for the voters, it's a lot more confusing for the people who are trying to manipulate the vote. And that's good. It is a good one. And speaking of, you know, if you could have it your way, if you could advise our current president and wave a magic wand to orchestrate two to three institutional or structural changes in U.S. democracy, what would they be and why? Wow. Well, you, I mean, that is a question that is, of course, way above my pay grade. I think some things would be probably we should end lifetime tenure for Supreme Court justices. I think that sort of creates like insanely high stakes changes in our fundament, the fundamentals of our government that, that sort of depend on just like who can hold their body like long enough <laughs> together, long enough to get to the next presidential election. It's a very weird way to decide what the fundamental principles of your government are. Um, I think obviously... Senate malapportionment is like a big problem, but it's like a, it's a baked in problem that is, uh, it's written into our constitution over, you know, Alexander Hamilton, certainly, you know, one, one thing I read about in the book is Hamilton being like, are you guys not seeing that this system, like, what are you going to do when like a third of the population, like controls, like more than half of the Senate seats and like control everything? Like, obviously that's ridiculous. And he was sort of saying it in a sort of thought experiment. Obviously that would be ridiculous. Well, that's where we are. Um, and it is just as ridiculous as the founders said it would be, believed it would not come to pass, apparently. I mean, the I mean, you know, there were big states and small states in the founders' time, but not like now, right? You didn't have one state 60 times as big as another as we do now. And it could get worse, right? I mean, you could have you could have states just like sort of like emptying out of people until there's just like a couple senators living there and nobody else. I mean, that can, okay, maybe that's like a little bit, but roughly that, right? Roughly that. There's three people left and they decide which two of them are going to be the senators. But that's a, I mean, how to say it? It's a problem I wouldn't know how to tell a president or anybody else to deal with because we sort of live in this kind of founding fiction that we're not a country. We're sort of 50 separate governments that have decided to sort of temporarily kind of yoke themselves to each other. Uh and work together on certain things. I don't think most Americans feel like that anymore, but in many ways, it's kind of like it's built into the structure. That's why there's 50 different rules for everything. We've touched on this briefly when we discussed the average age of voters in local elections. But do you think that an unwillingness to change from previous structures is maybe in part due to the people 
that are currently in charge and the people that currently vote, aka old people. But do you think there will be a change when younger people, you know, become more in power, kind of rise up through these ranks, become elected officials, become these regular voters, become kind of the next dominant generation? I don't know. You know, the thing about young people is they become old people. It keeps on happening. No way. What? (laughs) Right. I mean, people said the same thing in the 90s, right, when I was in college. And like old people are a renewable resource. We keep on making them. Political change relies on the energy of the young. And that is uh, and that was true in the 90s when we were young. And it's true now. And it'll be true when today's young people are now old. But what I don't think is that you can say like, okay, wait till they're 50 and empowered. And then they'll be like huge change makers because when they're 50 and empowered, then they're embedded in some institution that has served them well and that they feel inclined to protect, like just like you do and just like I do. And then there will be like new young people because we also make those all the time who are advocates for change. But a few things, and then I think I can circle this one around. I have something to do with the book. So, I mean, one thing I'll say is just, you know, writing this book and writing about the history of gerrymandering and other things, you know, you sort of have some sort of close encounters with like a wider range of American history than just the part I lived through, which as a mathematician is not part of my professional training and I often don't encounter it. And I'm not sure I think American politics are uniquely dirty or corrupt. Another of the books I mentioned in that New York Times interview was Big Trouble. I don't know if you guys have read it, but I, I mean, it's kind of, all of American history like wrapped up in this one story, the story of the former governor of Idaho being murdered by a dynamite explosion, like dynamite uh, tied to his front gate as he came home one day. And everything's in it, you know, like uh, the the history of American racism, the Civil War, uh, labor strife, uh, everybody, Clarence Darrow is in it, like everybody, everybody's there. And, you know, you read about this and you're like, how did we even get here to like some reasonable level of good government from where we were in 1905, where literally uh, the government of Idaho wanted to try somebody who they thought was involved in the murder. And so they like literally sent people out to just like kidnap the guy from Colorado, like to make to make sure that he couldn't get in front of a judge. Like they literally sort of grabbed the guy at gunpoint and kidnapped him uh, and pulled him over state lines so that he couldn't have his case be heard in the state where he was in like so that at the time was like seen as like yeah you do what you got to do like if you have to like commit some crimes and do some kidnapping like by agents of the state like you just do it because that's our our goal here so I, I guess what I'm saying is like it's not insane to believe that there's an arc that can move towards good government even if you see corruption all around you and the other thing I would say is that you know when you talk about being concerned about you know, revision of history, including very recent history, including history we all saw on TV. Again, this is going to be a little bit old fashioned of me, but I do believe that the mathematical point of view and the geometrical point of view and what we do and we sort of sit down and try to construct like a careful mathematical argument does help train us in that critical point of view and that kind of constant questioning of like, why do I believe the things I believe? Why do I assert the things I assert? What underlies them? What principles am I arguing for? What sorry? What principles am I arguing from? As far back as people have been teaching geometry in school, it has been understood that we're not doing it because it's vital that the population 
knows about triangles. I mean, I love triangles, but it has always been understood. There was a poll that I write about in the book from 1950 where they asked American high school teachers, like, why do you teach geometry? Yeah, some people said, so the kids will know geometry, but many more said, so that they learn the habits of mind that geometry inculcates. So old fashioned though it may be, it's been working like that for a long time. And people again and again, uh, from Abraham Lincoln uh, to Rita Dove, the former poet laureate, to Thomas Hobbes, to Ronald Ross, to all these various characters in the book, have had this encounter with geometry and been like, this is like a really strong, robust way of knowing things that's superior to a lot of the alternatives. So I do feel like old fashioned though it may be, the power of that way of thinking is not worn out and it's still available to people. And I hope that, you know, well, all of us who teach math and just by writing books like this, that we can kind of like promote that point of view. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that's interesting that the teaching and learning of geometry can relate so broadly to things later in life and to the way you think and to the way you, I guess, see things around you. It's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what Lincoln thought for sure. As we're coming to a close here, is there anything we haven't talked about that you wish we should have talked about or anything that you'd like to say? No, this was fun. We went in some really interesting directions today. I hope people enjoy it. Yeah. Awesome. Good luck, New York. For more information about 1050 Bascom, visit polysci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Adam Wigger and Sam Beisman, produced by Amy Gangle and recorded remotely for now.